is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today is one of those Beyond episodes. We have with us professor at Columbia University and author of probably uh, the best book I've read in a minute now. It's called Jewish Comedy, A Serious History. Uh, he's the amazing Jeremy Dauber, and we're going to talk about the very serious business of comedy. So right now we're getting close to the end of talking about the book of Genesis and getting started on the book of Exodus. And I think it's worth reflecting on how we got here. So on one level, Genesis is like the grand cosmic story of creation, destruction, and rebirth, followed by an extended, intimate portrait of a family striving to fulfill its divine responsibilities. And it's a really serious story. And for thousands of years, people from the greatest scholars to the simplest common folk uh, have taken it very seriously, as they should, and as do I, for whatever that's worth. But, and this might qualify as a hot take, but it's not meant to be, um, I think it'd be a great shame if all we could see were that seriousness of purpose. Uh, And this was more or less Mark Twain's criticism of Benjamin Franklin. So Franklin was famous in the history of American education for the character of Poor Richard, uh, an exemplary fellow showing early Americans the way to success through industriousness and virtue. And and Franklin himself, in fact, was actually held up as a model to young Americans in the 19th century. So if you want to make your way in the world, just be like Franklin, save every penny, early to bed, early to rise, and so on and so forth. Now, Mark Twain, who was raised on Poor Richard's Almanac as a boy, absolutely detested this stuff. And his chief criticism was that making every single second of a young person's life about self-improvement is a surefire way to make them miserable or insufferable or both. And what Twain wrote was, Nowadays, a boy cannot follow a single natural instinct without hearing from Franklin on the spot. If he wants to buy two cents worth of peanuts, his father says, remember Franklin, a penny saved is a penny earned, and all the comfort has gone out of those peanuts. So it's bad to take yourself in the world too seriously. Laughter and innocent pleasures are good. And as my teacher, Rabbi Shalom Karmi, put it, uh, and it's a wonderful line, how much of the profound moral evil in the world, to say nothing of mere misery, is due to boredom and restlessness masquerading as a quest for greatness and self-transcendence? And make no mistake, the Bible itself knows when to laugh, whether it's Abraham laughing at the idea that an old man like himself might actually have a kid, or the book of Jonah's hopeless protagonist trying everything he could to shirk his prophetic duty to call the people of Nineveh to repentance, only to have them, like, (laughs) repent immediately like the second he gets there. Uh, The exact reverse, by the way, of the relationship between biblical prophets and their Israelite charges, or whether it's, you know, zinger after zinger in the book of Ecclesiastes, puncturing the egos of kings, aristocrats, wealthy landowners. But here's where I think it's worth raising our voices in defense of Benjamin Franklin. As my teacher also pointed out, Franklin himself was clearly a man of wit uh, and good humor as well. So what you actually get in Franklin's work is both seriousness and wonderful moments of levity and good-hearted laughter. So as Rabbi Carmi also wrote in an essay for First Things, with Franklin, I can get the seriousness and the humor together, which is fitting, since the moral instruction we need invariably calls for a bit of deflationary humor to preserve it from smugness. And to me, that's what we need. I think as a society, we could stand to take our humor a bit more seriously, and our seriousness could stand a healthy dollop of lightheartedness and willingness to laugh at itself. And I'd say we as an American society probably need to be more serious than we are, but... 
I think certainly not as serious as in our worst moments we tell ourselves we need to be. So to unpack all of this and to think about comedy more broadly and why it's so important, I brought on one of the world's experts on humor in America. He's the author of several fabulous books, uh, including a great one on Jewish comedy. He's a professor at Columbia University. He's Jeremy Dauber. Jeremy, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I love that introduction. That was wonderful. Thank uh, you. Let's get right into it. So you are in one of the coveted spots in professional life. You're a professor at a very prestigious university. What drew you to thinking about the kinds of things that we all love to do? What drew you to thinking about comedy? Well, I think that was the answer in the question. I think what, what drew me in no small part to it was, first, that I loved it, like all of us, and as uh, naturally, uh, I have as you say, I'm very lucky to have the opportunity to spend time thinking and teaching and writing about things that are of interest to me personally. And so, you know, this was one of them. And also, uh, as I think you pointed out both in your introduction and in your question, you know, studying something that we all think about is a really useful tool in kind of understanding the way a culture works and understanding the way that we operate as people, as Jews, as consumers of literature, as people uh, who are trying to find meaning and to make their way in the world. So very frequently that really is focused in the academy and in general on some of the most rarefied air. But most of us don't live all the time in that rarefied air. We kind of live down on the ground and we tell jokes and we we laugh. And, and, and that's a phenomenon that I thought was really worthy of talking about and thinking about and writing about too. So I'm fascinated by actors, as friends of mine know, I have this long-standing fascination with this, by actors whom everyone thinks is Jewish but aren't, right? So sometimes it's like boring, right? It's because they have a Jewish-sounding name, like Seth Meyers, or something silly like that, or their nose is too big. But other times, I feel like you just assume that this person should be Jewish, and they're totally not at all. And that says something about their comedy. So, like, my favorite example of this is Steve Carell, right? Have you encountered this phenomenon? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, as part of writing this history of Jewish comedy, that that, that was one of the books. I have a new book coming out uh, about comic books, American comic books. But, but this book that came out a couple of years ago, it, you know, was saying, well, what is Jewish comedy? And one of the decisions I made was, you know, it has to be, essentially speaking, sub by someone who was Jewish. And I was a little less... Uh, bothered by exactly what definition of Jewishness we we're going to use, but but that meant you know making sure that some of the people uh, who who I might want to talk about were actually Jewish by whatever definition. Uh, and so you know a classic <laughs> example of this was Charlie Chaplin, who a lot of people thought was Jewish and was not. It's like Adam Sandler's line in the Hanukkah song, like Bruce Springsteen isn't Jewish, but my mother thinks he is. You know. <laughs> yeah, and I think you know I did a I don't do that many podcasts, but I did one for Stanford on the Hanukkah song which is a hugely important document of American comedy and American Jewish comedy particularly. Um, and it's a, it's a great example. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of this is, as you say, coming from some inchoate sense, not just of what a person, what a Jew should look like, but what Jewish comedy should be, what it is. And obviously that differs from historical period to historical period. But in America, we have some sense of what Jewish comedy should look like. And as you say, Steve Carell kind of depending on it fits in to our, our sense of what Jewish comedy could be. I think kind of. As a result, we have this thing to say, okay, well, maybe he's Jewish. Maybe maybe this is Jewish comedy. And sometimes it takes the historian or the critic to say, well, you know, uh, it's a beautiful theory slain by an unlovely fact. Right, right. <laughs> that last thing I will say is, of course, that in something like 
whether it's The Daily Show or The Office uh, or something like that, you know, all of these kind of mediums are collaborative efforts. So to talk about sort of Jewish comedy uh, in those is both very wide ranging and, and can be very inclusive and also very complicated. Um, when, my, when Steve Carell is speaking lines written by one person and directed by another person in conversation with five other actors of different sort of groups and what have you. So I actually want to pick up on that that last point that you made about comedy being collaborative. Because if I'm thinking of sort of the history of comedy in America, the heights of comedy, so the moment where I kind of come into this just as the long-standing fan of it, you know, you're the late 80s, early 90s, and we have this strong tradition, this and really dominant tradition of like the individual creator and genius as the basis for comedy. All right, so think Seinfeld. And by the way, Seinfeld's a great example because it's not true of Seinfeld. Seinfeld is very collaborative, but it's presented as sort of Jerry Seinfeld's individual genius and Larry David kind of like disappears into the background and into the persona of George Costanza, who's just a character. You have The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, which also, again, is like very collaborative, but it's presented as like The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And shortly after that, you have Chappelle's show, similar thing. And it's continuing this tradition like from the 50s and the 60s, like I Love Lucy is a Lucille Ball show. There's the Andy Gr- It's literally the Andy Griffith show. But then early 2000s, we start to have this really decisive shift, and we're still in it today, to the ensemble, right? So Seinfeld Part 2 is... Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is not the Larry David show. It's an ensemble show. It's about Larry David. It's presented as an ensemble. It's very improv-based, so these are all people who are hanging out together. And then you start to see, like, examples of the reverse thing from Seinfeld. Like, The Lonely Island is, you know, I think Jeff Ross called them, like, Andy Samberg and the boys, right? But, like, it's it really is just Andy Samberg and, and like, two other guys, but they're presented as an ensemble. as The Lonely Island. You know, you have, like, the Judd Apatow crew. Like, they're all individually famous, but they're very much identified as a crew of people. Like, a, like a crowd of people and and even shows like crashing which is pete holmes which is you know like the pete holmes show it's like presented as a show about these like individual comedians and how lonely they are and how they only survive through this incredible and uplifting sense of community and so i'm wondering what is that shift am i right to perceive that shift am i wrong to perceive it what does that tell us about like the trajectory of entertainment and society in america well, you know, I think that actually one of the things that's most interesting about that, this is a, you know, a, a cultural historian's move, let's say, uh, is to say that a lot of this is about how we tell the story rather than what the story is, if we could ever do that, right? Because one could imagine a different narrative account of the periods that you just talked about that focused on the family or the group sitcom, uh, Cheers, Family Ties, uh, you know, all these kinds of shows, um, Friends. Uh, uh, and, and you could imagine defining some of these groups sort of internally rather than externally. So for example, um, we, because we uh, think about Andy Samberg as sort of, a, you know, might think of the Lonely Island one way. Uh, certainly, I suspect that Andy Samberg and Jorma Tacona and Akiva Schaefer think about The Lonely Island just in terms of how the dynamic works in a different way. And then there are these sort of weird conglomerations of those ideal types that we're talking about, too, where Saturday Night Live uh, is a collective where individual people burn more brightly than others and they go out and do individual work. And then so a lot of this depends on how we tell the story. I do think, though, that you're right to identify certain kinds of ideal poles of comedy. And we could put those very broadly in 
something in which uh, the comedy comes from the transmuted lived experience of an individual who is in some sense speaking their truth. And that late 80s and 90s thing was certainly a phenomenon that comes out of Lenny Bruce uh, and Joan Rivers and some of these others. And that allows for the experience of saying, I am X, right? I am uh, a Jew. I am African-American or a black. I'm I'm gay. I'm going to tell these as as comedy, right? Or a kind of situational or improvisational collectivity, right? Where we say, well, really what we're doing here together is kind of key, right? Whether it's the landscape of an all in the family, right? Uh, or a bar in Boston in Cheers's case, or a Central Perk coffee house, uh, and, and, and sort of what it's like, as the Jewish creators of Friends said, what it's like to be kind of in your late 20s uh, after you're finished college and before you're married. You know, there's a lot of sort of mixing and and bringing together in that kind of way. As you say, uh, on some level, you could define Curb Your Enthusiasm as a story of the Larry David show, stepping out from behind that curtain of Seinfeld, like you said. On the other hand, it's also a real improvisational work with a cast that, as the years have gone on, have become more and more important to the functioning of the show. So, you know, a lot of it is how you tell that story. And I'm never sure to make a big sort of top line what that means in those terms as a result. What I will say is absolutely the case, is that Curb Your Enthusiasm would have been far more unlikely to exist without HBO doing a lot of original programming. And that shift from only a couple of conduits, a couple of major network channels to pay cable and now streaming, where the audiences required to make something successful are much smaller, really allows for a much wider diversity of expression. It could have been that that Judd Apatow crew that you're saying could only have had one movie or one, you know, every year. But now, you know, they can have a movie and they can all be together and then they can have their own shows on streaming, uh, you know, individually, or they can have their own little projects and or podcasts, right? Uh, And it's okay that they work for just a smaller number of people, which allows much more individual expressions to flourish. Because I remember thinking like, I think it must have been somewhere like early 2010s when some network announced that it was doing a show called Mulaney, right? It was like John Mulaney. It was supposed to be like Seinfeld. I remember knowing before I saw a single episode, and I love John Mulaney. I love John Mulaney's comedy. I remember knowing before I saw a single episode of it that like, because no one does shows like this anymore. Or, you know, like another example, I suppose would be that Like, if I were thinking now, like, hey, I'm going to quit my podcast day job and I want to go get myself like a network TV show or a movie deal or like a Netflix deal or something like that. And like, even if I want to do like stand up specials on Netflix, where I would go wouldn't be to like hone my chops in the comedy cellar or like nightclubs or whatever it is. I'd go and sign up for like UCB theater or Second City or like one of the great improv things. Like, it does feel like there's some sort of shift towards more community in in the world of comedy. And it was always there. It's just now it seems like so much more blatant. Yeah, I I honestly, you know, it's so hard for me to look at the landscape of this specific moment and make any particular determinations. We can have this podcast again in 20 years and we can talk about 2021. You know, Bo Burnham has now just won an Emmy for this special. Everyone is saying, my gosh, you know, the individual practitioner of the special can make this into an art form. Right. That one was pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. Comedy specials are doing, stand-ups are doing great on Netflix, on Amazon, right? They're churning them out. So that's one story. On the other hand, I agree with you that one of the stories of the last 15, 20 years has just been the mushrooming of the improv system, you know, into sort of turning out many more people uh, and also into creating a kind of launching post for a lot of other things. So 
which of those stories is true? Both of them are true, right? And 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 part of that is that the landscape is now so much larger that you can comfortably fit both of these and say, you know what? This was great to watch something that comes out of these people with an improv background. All right, I'm done with that. I'm going to go watch the new uh, special that dropped on Netflix that the algorithm has recommended to me. And this person I would have never heard of, but they sound great. And it turns out to be a great special. So will that continue? You know, Netflix could just say, actually, we're not making enough money on these. We're going to pull the plug. And then will it, the, the story would change again. I don't think that's what's going to happen, but we'll find out. So outside of the children's media genre, which I love, by the way, like I love Disney movies, I can't think of a memorable use of animation outside of comedy. Like Avatar is maybe the most like forgettable movie of all time. So where, whereas in comedy, cartoons are responsible for some of like the most enduring and meaningful work, whether it's like The Simpsons and South Park or like even shading into more serious territory like BoJack Horseman. So why is animation so effective for comedy specifically? I'm glad you're bringing this up because it gives me yet another opportunity to plug my comics book, which is coming out in just a couple of weeks on sale now. <laughs> I didn't even know. I love it. This <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. This oh, I have more questions about that. Don't worry about it. <laughs> oh, great. Amazing. But I think, you know, one of the things that's wonderful about animation for comedy, and this goes all the way from sort of the Looney Tunes cartoons to, as you say, BoJack Horseman or something, which is a remarkable show, is that it allows for the creative and surreal imagination of a comedy to stretch itself uh, in ways that would either be prohibitively expensive or simply impossible more photographic, photorealistic visual media. And in some sense, even if they were possible through special effects, which are animation in some ways by another name, right, they would fall down into the uncanny valley and they would feel discomforting and uncomfortable rather than, uh, you know, amusing. So, you know, you think of that classic example of the Roadrunner, you know, going off over the cliff and not realizing that gravity doesn't work until he looks down, right, and falling down. That is sort of a, a thing of beauty. You can even say it's a thing of art that really only works because we can suspend disbelief in a very specific type of amused way. The same thing with, you know, these random jokes uh, in BoJack Horseman, uh, where the animals have very particular sort of animal characteristics, even though there's sort of these anthropomorphic people and it, you know, and it, and it fits into the showbiz satire. So much of that would be so hard to set up and really feel odd uh, in any kind of other media. The other thing, which I think is actually a complicated thing, is that animation allows for a certain kind of ventriloquism that is not necessarily as easy to accomplish when you're not playing an animated role. Increasingly, we uh, are seeing a move, in some cases, I think a welcome move, towards a kind of coherence or realism in animation, where you say, well, if it's a black character, it should be played by a black, it should be voiced by a black actor. But nobody is necessarily knows, you know, who should voice an ocelot. That allows for, you know, an <laughs> expansion there in certain kinds of ways, right? So, I mean, Ross Douthat recently had an amazing column, uh, basically just ma making the case for theism in the New York Times. And one of the things that he pointed out, which I think was really astute, was that we often think of not particularly like biblical theism even, just like a regular sense of like something metanatural or supernatural as like having a higher bar to clear than materialism. And the point that he makes is simply that that's like a particularly modern sensibility. And 
the funny thing is, as as he also points out, is that, you know, even in the wake of, like, just the thorough victory of, like, scientific revolutionary materialism over every other explanation of, of contemporary life, is that even as it's won, people have kept on just having weird experiences, out-of-body experiences, supernatural encounters, whatever it is. I wonder, to the extent that, like, any real person who's lived on planet Earth for more than five seconds knows that life imitates art much more than mathematics. Like, this is such a weird place that we live, right? Like, I've always just found myself so attracted to kind of like the absurd elements of animation, whether it's in superhero comic books or whether it's in like BoJack Horseman or South Park or what have you. Not because it's like surreal, but like in some ways, is it like a safety valve for sort of acceptably exploring the the weird and the supernatural without kind of running afoul of like the official materialism that's pretty dominant in cultural spaces? Like, is there something to that? Yeah, I think that's very astute. I mean, I think to me, you know, as you're saying one of the overarching themes in literature and art through all of history uh, is that life is a dream or life is a vision or there are elements of it that are beyond sort of our materialist senses. And that is a very important part of who we are. And art really allows us in all sorts of ways, I think, to explore that possibility to say, you know, there is something here that is doing something that is not simply reducible to a kind of natural cause. And that is, as you say, in the modern world, I think that is a kind of safe way of exploring those feelings and calling them art rather than calling them religion or something like that, right? Is to say, you know, we often use this in secular society to say, well, I look at this painting and I had a religious experience, right? And so you have that link that's still very much there. I think a certain kind of animation does that. Not probably not all of it, but a certain kind of it absolutely does say, uh, I'm going to explore these kind of things. I think, for example, uh, in the late 60s, you have this kind of underground comics movement and they are right very much of this new agey kind of stuff. And, and they are using these visual culture, which is animation, let's say, on the page, to explore some sense of the transcendent through these kind of visions that they put down on the comic book page, right? These are religious experiences, even for those of them who are not necessarily interested in a confessional religion or even one of the things that we really was very much in the air at the time. So I often say in this podcast that I'm like a very proud religious nut. So I'm the kind of guy who like, if someone says, oh my God, like I watched BoJack Horseman and it felt like a religious experience, my response, like I'm the guy who's gonna be like, no, you had a religious experience. I'm like, you're so lucky. That's amazing. (laughs) So I raise it because... You know, a book that obviously I care very deeply about uh, is the Bible. <laughs> and the Bible really is like the, or at least one of the quintessential like American texts, right? So David Brooks, who was recently on this podcast, described it this way. He said, we're an Exodus nation. And I think in many, that, that just resonates, I think, not just with me, but with so much of our history so deeply. And so reading through, you know, your work, one of the things that I was so gratified to see, and it, it was surprising to me in many ways, though it shouldn't have been, was that there are ways to read biblical texts, narratives through a comedic lens, which is not to say that like the Bible is meant to be, you know, having a laugh or whatever, but there is a way in which I felt like I I benefited so much more or my understanding of particular stories or instances in the Bible was made so much richer by your bringing a comedic lens to it. So can you talk about like maybe, you know, one passage or event or story or what have you in the Bible where we'd benefit from understanding more of its comedic elements? Yeah, I think there are two. The first, which I think is the easier of the two in certain ways, is the kind of story that's in the book of Judges, let's say. You know, you have a story in which the book is clearly saying, 
We think that anyone who has not gotten with a divine program is mockable, is ridiculous, is worthy of ridicule. And we are going to use a set of standard comedic tools, not very nice ones necessarily, but ones that everyone would recognize are part of the comedian's repertoire, or the comedy's repertoire, uh, to make fun of them, right? So the enemies of Israel are presented as stupid, or they're presented as fat, or they're presented as going to the bathroom a lot, or dying in sort of ignominious ways as a, as a wretched sort of ridiculous death, right? All of those things uh, are present in one single story. That is the story of Ehud uh, in the book of Judges. Um, and again, we might not love the kind of comedy, particularly now in the 21st century. We don't like kind of comedy that makes fun of other people because of some attribute of theirs. But again, we would recognize that that is sort of a standard comedic element. And this idea of mockery of people who are not sort of with the divine program is something which is very much written into certain parts of the Bible. Uh, you can also think again of the prophets, you know, who say, oh, I, idol worshipers, they're idiots, they're worshiping sticks and stones, what morons. Or Elijah on, on Mount Carmel, sort of saying, oh, maybe your God's in the bathroom, right? That's why he's not helping you out, right? All of these are examples of comedy. Elijah is making a, a kind of barbed comedic statement there at the expense of, of the priests of Baal. And like, this is like part and parcel of like, we all know, like from a very serious standpoint, like the Hebrew Bible is a critique of power and empire. And this is like such an essential element to it. And I totally had missed it. Like in the story of Ehud in the book of Judges, like Eglon, who's sort of like the Moabite ruler who's oppressing the Israelites, is like this petty tyrant who has set himself up in place of God. And the Bible is sort of puncturing him, not just, well, quite literally, that's what Ehud does to him, but puncturing his reputation and his divine pretensions through comedy. It was such a powerful thing that I read when I encountered your book. It was so brilliant. If someone says, look, okay, here's this big king, right? I mean, literally and metaphorically, right? And, you know, he gets fallen out because someone's like, I've got a secret for you, uh, but I can't tell you in front of your armed guards, let's go to the bathroom. And the guy says, well, that seems like a good idea, a person I've never met before. I think that sounds right. You know, it's a secret after all. But you're like, well, this person is a moron, right? And and that is that is so much of a rhetorical device, as you're saying, to sort of puncture people who are not, again, with the program. And, and, and this is a very triumphalist model. And the best part is, like again, I, this had never occurred to me because you, you always read the story in such a serious key and you kind of miss the moral element of it by missing the comedy. Is like, Ehud then, again, this is like a horrible tyrant. Ehud gets him into the bathroom via this like ridiculous stratagem. He then stabs him and the, the smell is so bad and you, you'd assume that at that point the guards who are standing right outside are going to catch him, but he wanders out totally unscathed not through some divine miracle, but because the guards are like, well, that's what it usually smells like in here. And It's like such an amazing, right. <laughs> it's like such an amazing moment in the biblical text. I totally had missed it. That's right. And maybe some of your listeners are aware that what we call sort of technically scatology, that is to say humor that has to do with uh, bodily functions is something which appears in later rabbinic texts as well. A lot of people grew up with a story about Haman on Purim, you know, who is covered with the slops bucket that his, his daughter sort of throws down on him. Or the rabbis sort of like poke fun at Pharaoh as like, why did Moses encounter him at the Nile River? It was because he didn't want anybody to see him go to the bathroom because they thought he was God, right? That's so right. You, it's, you're totally right. This is like a, a long, there's a long tradition of sort of puncturing these sort of divine pretenders using scatological humor. I had totally missed all of this. 
Yeah. Oh, well, I'm you know glad to provide a service. <laughs> I think that that's right. So I think that that's one strategy. And sometimes audiences are unlike you, but sometimes audiences are a little uncomfortable that that strategy exists because it feels a little bit, especially to 21st century audiences, like kicking someone when they're down. Right? Where are the Moabites now? But you know, I think that this was just part of the course to say that you know, if we say that uh, the classic dictum that the Torah speaks in the language of people, right? We can add a, a bracket to that of the people. Who were reading the Torah at the time, also then, and this was part of uh, a comedic language. I think that's one kind of comedy that the Torah, that the Bible recognizes. Another kind, though, which I think is in many ways more profound, um, and I got into a little bit of trouble for writing it in this way, but I did it on purpose, was to say that the Bible is not funny with a capital N and a capital F. And that is because it understands concepts of human comedy or ironic knowledge about the world, irony, right? An iron in ancient Greek comedy was someone literally who stood outside and kind of commented on the action. And it says, you really, you meaning the world, the humans don't know anything. And so faith can trump comedy because I can, I mean, God can do things in order to make the fact that your knowledge exists totally irrelevant because that's not how the world works. The world works thanks to me. And the classic example of that is one that you mentioned in your introduction is Abraham and Sarah, where Sarah is a classic laugher, right? One of the first examples of laughter in Western literature, certainly the first example of the Bible. Sarah is a classic laugher because she knows how the world works. She's post-menopausal and these people come to her, people, angels, right? We could talk about, but uh, they receive hospitality and they say, oh, you're going to have a kid. Uh, thank you so much. We see you don't have any kids. You're going to have a kid. And Abraham, that ostensible schmuck, right, sort of says, oh, thank you know, amazing, fantastic. That's that's wonderful. God's going to tell us we're going to have a kid. But Sarah's like, come on, we know how the world works. And she laughs. And she has that kind of human comedy. And God says, you have no idea how the world works. I can do whatever I want to do. If I want to post menopausal and a hundred-year-old man to get together and have a, have a kid, that will happen. And so then Sarah learns to laugh in a different kind of way, which is a laughter of kind of accepting that ironic knowledge and ironic comedy doesn't work in the world of the Bible. And I think that that's right. And in some ways, you could say the only entity in the Bible who gets to be ironic is God, um, because God knows. Uh, but doesn't exercise it, at least in the Bible, I think, either at all or, or certainly not that often. In rabbinic uh, literature, as I don't need to tell you, there's a lot of examples of God laughing, and it's almost always this kind of ironic laughter. So I actually, in a weird way, that transitions perfectly to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, when you think of the Abraham and Sarah story, so it has both comedic and hortatory kind of didactic elements is trying to teach you a lesson. And the outcome, you know, as much as it kind of has a very long kind of 3,000 series of sequels and trilogies and so forth, it's ultimately a story that has a happy ending, right? Isaac is born. And it kind of got me thinking like, you know, in, in the American sphere, we you know, sometimes talk about, or as I was reading your book, I was thinking about Jewish comedy versus different communities, traditions of comedies, like in the black community or Hispanic community, what have you. But there's also a way of thinking of like an American tradition writ large, rather, versus, let's say, like the British tradition. Um, and I think of it particularly because of one of the most popular shows of the last like decade or two, which is one of my favorite shows, which is The Office. And it's sort of like become like a mark of sophistication to like prefer the British office to the American office. And I, um, you know, I, I suppose this is sort of like <laughs> my greatest commitment to populism is preferring the American <laughs> office over the British office. But I don't know which one you prefer. Well, suppose first of all, I'd ask you which one you prefer. But if I could, even if you prefer the British one, could I could I ask you like what would be the 
defense of the American office over the British, uh, the British version. It's interesting because some of this can also be, I found, about when you approach things at different times in your life. So, you know, when I was younger, I watched the British office basically when it came out. I watched it before the American version came out. And I said, oh, okay, well. You were like into Nirvana before it was cool, you know. Like. I wish I would, but no, Nirvana, I came long after. But the British office I watched for comedy, I was a little. So, and it was really doing something very different. And that was exciting and that was interesting. But, you know, it was uncomfortable for the sake of being uncomfortable and sometimes even cruel for the sake of being cruel. And that was fine when you were at a place where you were only willing, let's say, or you, you, you were willing to view these as paper cutouts, paper doll cutouts, who were just being moved around these characters for your amusement. And in some sense, you know, as you get older and you, and you live longer and you feel more about people's stories and things like that, you know, some of that cruelty becomes for me personally, less pleasant to watch. So I have moved more towards enjoying the rounder, kind of warmer, less barbed humor of the American office than I did. Um, I still think that as a technical thing to pull off, I am extremely impressed with the British office, maybe in some ways more than the American office, but as, in terms of the one that I'd want to watch again, I'd much rather watch the American office uh, than the British one. My feeling about it is, is like the British office kind of offers ultimately this like very depressing view of human life, which is that all things fall apart, everything disintegrates, no, you know, the the people who are supposed to end up together don't end up together. Whereas the American office kind of offers this, this hope in the face of cubicle-based drudgery. And I, there's a part of me that's like, at the end of the day, you could have told either story either way, but there is something to the fact that the leading man, the head of the office in the British version is a very proud and skeptical atheist. And the leading man in the American version of the office is a very proud Catholic, <laughs> like Steve Carell, right? And it gets to the question of like, I think like the British version sort of prides itself on like, this is how it really would have turned out. But I'm not sure if that's true, right? Like, is it ne necessarily more realistic that everything is horrible than the American version, which is that, no, there's like redemption? <laughs> well, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, I think about it, not surprisingly, as I've been saying, I'm thinking a lot more about comic books these days. And I think that there's a, a stage in the lifestyle of a lot of, of people who like comic book characters, uh, you know, in the great Superman versus Batman debate, right? And and I think it's very much on point of what you're saying, right? We're as a kid, everybody loves Superman. You're sort of bright and you're shiny and you're this. And then there comes a period sort of in adolescence and teenager and young adulthood where everybody says that same thing that you're saying with the British and shifts to Batman. Everyone's like, the world, you know, it's, 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 we got to be gritty and we've got to be real. And, and so we're going to Batman. That's really sort of the And then sometimes people stay that way. And sometimes people say, you know what? I'm going to go in through the outdoor again. And I really see the pleasures in a kind of character who really is seeing the best in people, always sees that there is the possibility for truth and for justice and for, well, as they used to have it the American way. Now it's, it's, it's shifted to a better tomorrow. You know, I, and I think that that vibe is something where uh, it appeals very strongly to that same thing in us that we were talking about before, who looks at a piece of art, uh, who looks at a text, uh, who looks at a book and finds transcendence in it. Superman is from somewhere else after all, right? And not everybody feels that way, and that's fine, but but some people do. And I think that there's a kind of maturity in reapproaching that, even if you ultimately side with Batman, um, but reapproaching Superman and not just dismissing him. It's like my daughter, when, when she was little, her favorite Beatles song was Penny Lane, right? A Paul song. Now that she's a little older, 
she's a, a hardcore like John head, right? Like her favorite songs, like I Am the Walrus, Strawberry Fields, uh, Nowhere Man. And my hope is that as she gets older and mature, she'll like kind of revert back into, or, or she'll, she will grow into a Paul person once again, which is the true path of light. hundred <laughs> percent. I, 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 we're on the same wavelength. I talk about this with Lennon McCartney all the time too. I think it's a perfect example, right? Everybody at 14 is like, ah, oh, Paul, he was just a poser and he did it. Oh, it's Lennon. It's Lennon. It's Lennon. And you know, there's a point at which, again, you can end up being whoever you want to be. That's fine with me, but at least to come back and appreciate appreciate what McCartney is doing and what he's capable of achieving. I think, I think that's the right stage. That's exactly analogous. I love it. So uh, you, you've mentioned it a couple times now, and actually just because we literally talked about comic books on one of the previous episodes with Antonio Garcia Martinez. So you've alluded to a couple of things, but like, what's the thrust of the project and what can we do to get excited about it? You know, the thing that I was excited about in writing the book was that I said, you know, nobody's written a history of American comic books. Now, you know, there are a lot of superhero people and there are a lot of people who focus on like the alternative or independent graphic novels, but there really wasn't a book that's kind of told the whole story uh, from the first sort of newspaper to, uh, you know, right now to Dogman and to, uh, you know, the Marvel movies and, and all of that kind of stuff. So that was the whole thing. And, you know, not surprisingly, I partially came to the story through a Jewish angle, right? I mean, you know, it will not be a secret to many of the people who are listening to this that Jews were so deeply involved in the creation of many different aspects uh, of the comic industry uh, as they were with so many different kinds of mass culture media uh, in America. But there are all sorts of surprising angles to it as well that I think people might not know about. So I think they're going to enjoy this because everybody, again, it's like we're saying, has a connection to comics of one sort. It might be that you grew up reading Peanuts in newspapers. It might be that you were a comic book kid. It might be that you watch the movies now. It might be that you liked Mouse, you know, and that was very powerful and profound for you. But all of these are part of one big story, actually. And it was a lot of fun to tell. Amen. That is awesome. Jeremy Dauber, he's the author of Jewish Comedy, A Serious History, which is amazing. The new book on comic books is coming out. When is that coming out? It's coming out in about three weeks. Unbelievable. So everyone pre-order, you know, do your part to make this book uh, a rocking success. Thank you so much for coming on. This is amazing. A real, real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We sometimes think of humor as standing in opposition to a serious, mission-driven life. And I honestly think nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, certainly there's a type of, like, wasteful silliness or abrasive smirking, what in early Hebrew is called leitzanus, that is corrosive and that we should avoid. But lightheartedness, innocent laughter, bright satire, parody, or even scatological humor are important parts of the human condition as well and are actually part of how God himself communicated with us and how some of the greatest people, sages, scholars, saints in history have lived their lives. And especially in this moment in American history, I think there are few things we could do that would be more healthy than learning to laugh at ourselves sometimes, take ourselves a bit less seriously, because if we do, it'll make getting serious much easier when it really matters. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, for tuning in. And if you enjoyed it, then please be awesome, be incredible, head into Apple Podcasts, head into Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you get your podcasts, and give us a rating. Five stars only, because it really helps people find the show. All right, that's it for now. This is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. 
If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul Shop Studios.